You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Now I get to kind of talk about whatever I want to talk about whenever it comes to, to dermatitis, which is pretty much all that I deal with. Uh, so I've got a lot of what I would call odd things or pearls that I'm going to put out there, all right? So a bunch of disclosures, Fisher's Contact Dermatitis, by far the greatest book ever written. You will laugh, you will cry. Most importantly, you will fall asleep quickly. All right, so CeraVe cream, you're gonna notice I mention it numerous times. You also note that CeraVe pays me. Thus, even though I fully believe that everything I say about CeraVe is completely based on evidence and is rock solid truth, there's tons of evidence that says people like me are completely wrong and we're horribly biased. And so take everything I say about CeraVe with a huge grain of salt because of that. Now, that said, I believe everything I say about CeraVe is totally science-based, okay? But I just told you you shouldn't believe it when I say that, all right? The reason, though, that I recommend CeraVe, it's the only uh, moisturizer that contains ceramides one and three, uh, and that is really the, the combination of the two ceramides that you need. And second, it is the least allergenic, widely available, uh, inexpensive moisturizer. So it is much less allergenic than, say, Vanna cream, right? So I probably see two or three people a month who I'm having the conversation with them, well, why did my dermatologist have me buy that Vanna cream from them if I'm allergic to it? Well, they didn't know you were allergic to the propylene glycol, but shouldn't they have known it was in there and I might be allergic to it? All right, I'm gonna go see my next patient, right? So just be a little careful with Vanna cream, all right? Uh, right, am I really an expert? I'm giving you my, my email address so that if you go home and do something I told you to do and it is a disaster, you can email me and call me an idiot, all right? Totally okay with that. Right, so now, patients referred to me for patch testing. What are the most common final diagnoses? Dermatitis NOS used to be probably the most common. It has gone down dramatically since I learned the diagnostic criteria for atopic dermatitis. So it turns out almost everyone I call dermatitis NOS really does meet criteria for atopic derm. Allergic contact, irritant contact, atopic, seborrheic, xerotic, numular, dermographism, also one of the most underdiagnosed things in, in dermatology in terms of itchy rashes you can do something about. Neurogenic, also very underdiagnosed, uh, harder to do something about neurogenic. Scabies, biggest thing I'll tell you about scabies, you are missing it. I miss it all the time. It is very regular, so, and I say very regular, once or twice a year. When I see somebody, back in my mind I say, ah, at least there's no way this could be scabies. And then they come back six months later and I'm like, son of a bitch, this is scabies, <laughs> right? I've had two cases over the years where I was doing a KOH of somebody's foot, hyperkeratotic, not itchy, I was just doing it to like show the resident, okay, here's what fungus looks like under the microscope, found scabies mites, right? Not itchy, just the soles of their feet, bizarre. Right, so if scabies even crosses my mind vaguely and generally, I treat. Right, now I tell the patient, I don't think you've got scabies, but the only way to know if you do or not is to treat and see if you get better, okay? We'll talk a little bit about how I treat scabies. Stasis, again, just remembering that if it's below the knee, it is stasis until proven otherwise, okay? I don't care if they've got like a one plus trace edema, you, it's like in my mind when I was a resident, it was like if you got stasis derm, you should have terrible edema, terrible circulation. No, you can get like one patch of stasis dermatitis because you've got one little perforator that's incompetent, right? So below the knee, 
itchy rash to stasis until proven otherwise, self-induced, uh, but not drug. Now, why do I say not drug? Because I do not actually believe that nonspecific eczematous dermatitis, so spongiotic on biopsy, is ever a drug reaction. Okay, so have I seen plenty of people who, oh, they took me off my drug and I got better. You've seen lots of those, but the rest of that then is, oh, and then six months later the rash came back again. Right, so just because you stop the drug and they get better does not mean the drug was the cause. Okay, so if I, now if I see any lichenoid, so whenever I'm biopsying these people, what I'm looking for is they're like, in, if there's any interface, any lichenoid, then, yes, I'm very worried about a drug reaction, but pure sponge derm, not a drug reaction. Okay, I've never seen it as a drug reaction once in my entire career. Okay, does it happen? Maybe but it should be like the last thing on your differential. I can't tell you how often I get patients who, oh, I've had this rash for a year and a half, my dermatologist is stopping one medication at a time, each for two months, uh, and they finally got through stopping all of them and I never got any better, so then they sent me to you. They didn't need the year and a half, right? It's, if it's just sponge derm, it's not a drug. Uh, it, it, now, if you're at the end of your rope, you got nothing else, okay, maybe, I, I guess it could happen, but, but sponge derm, do not think drug. All right, so I'm walking in a room, itchy rash, they've already been biopsied, so it's spongiotic. What are the things that I think are gonna help me? Right, what am I, what am I walking in the room thinking, okay, how am I gonna figure out what I'm gonna do? History, eh, not very helpful, okay? Might be helpful in a very targeted way where I'm looking at the rash and thinking, oh, this distribution fits with this, do you do that? But just kind of the, so tell me about your rash, does not generally give me any, anything useful. Uh, exam. So not very helpful except for distribution, okay? So where is the rash? That is by far, by far, the most important part of, of assessing any spongiotic dermatitis. Now, when I say the exam's not very helpful, it's not that I like look at it and be like, okay, right? And I don't examine them. I'm examining them like, looking at their sponge derm like this, because I'm looking to see is there anything that does not look dermatitis-y? Is there one little blister or one little thing that looks like a lesion of lichen planus that just all the rest of them have been excoriated? I'm really looking at them, but assuming that all that I find is what looks like sponge derm, not helpful. You can't tell the cause of a spongiotic dermatitis from the clinical appearance of it, right? So unless you find something other than dermatitis. Biopsy, not helpful. Right? It has been proven repeatedly, pathologists have absolutely zero ability to distinguish contact derm from atopic derm, from derm NOS, from any, from, if it's sponge derm, it's sponge derm. I don't care if there's a trillion EOs, I don't care if they, if they come back and say the only thing in here are eosinophils. So it must be, a, no, EOs mean nothing, okay, nothing about the, in a sponge derm picture. Now, if you get EOs in with a lichenoid dermatitis, then they mean a lot, right? But because, right, lichen planus doesn't have EOs and a lichenoid drug reaction does, but in sponge derm, EOs are meaningless, okay? And that's been proven over and over. It's been proven that pathologists can't tell anything about the etiology of a spongiotic dermatitis from the biopsy, all right? Labs, again, not helpful, right? There just aren't a lot of systemic things that, that cause a spongiotic dermatitis. And then patch testing, potentially diagnostic results about a third of the time, and about half of those, when I say potentially diagnostic, I'm talking, oh, you got a rash on your face, you're allergic to fragrance, there's fragrance in your shampoo, that's potentially diagnostic. The only way that it becomes, goes from potentially diagnostic to diagnostic is you get away from the fragrance and you get better. 
right? If you get away, if they get away from it and they don't get better, the next visit I'm talking about, I'm talking, okay, so tell me how you got away from it. What are you doing? And if they, if I believe them, oh, they really did change everything, then okay, it, it, you were allergic to fragrance, you got a facial rash, but that's not causing the facial rash. Okay, so about half of the people with a, a, a patch test reaction that makes sense actually end up being contact dermatitis. Okay, and the only way you find out is do they get better when they avoid it? All right, so history. What are the things that, that you know, do give me a little bit of, of benefit. So how long have they had it? If they had it since childhood, it's atopic derm. If it's seasonal, so if sweat makes them worse, it's atopic dermatitis. If it is, is reliably seasonal, gets worse in the spring and fall, gets worse in the summer, gets worse in the winter, I don't care what season it gets worse in. If it's seasonal, it's atopic dermatitis, okay? Seasonal or since childhood, it's atopic derm until proven otherwise. If it moves around from day to day, so we'll, we'll talk about this, we'll, we'll talk about it more when, when we go forward, specifically what I mean by that, but that is gonna be dermographism, right? There's nothing in dermatology that the itch moves from day to day, okay? It just, right, atopic derm, psoriasis, lichen planus, whatever, they don't move day to day. Product usage, right, can support irritant, xerotic, or allergic, but we're not talking like I go through with a routine patient, dermatitis patient, okay, tell me about everything that you use. When you get, a, when you get okay, you use that soap, but how do you use it? How hot is the shower water? Are you using a loofah? How hard is your water? Like, no, it's, are you, you, what soap are you using? And if it's anything other than, than Dove Bar, they're gonna change to Dove Bar, that's pretty much it. Right, beyond that, it, with uh, not a patch test patient, who I might have to go into a lot once I know what they're allergic to, normal people, product usage, uh, it's, it's not a long conversation for me. Itch precedes the rash that supports neurogenic. How many times have you ever heard this before? So they've got excoriated uh, lesions, usually on their forearms, maybe some parigonodules. Uh, so, so what are the, in all you see, what is it? So how do they start? Oh, these little red bumps that then I get a little bit of fluid out of them and then they just never heal, right? So what do we all believe is happening there? That they basically went like this, caused a little pink bump, then wouldn't leave it alone, picked at it until they got some fluid to come out of it, and now are continuing to pick at it to prevent it from healing. I actually don't believe that's what's going on in these people. So it is more neurogenic inflammation. So we now know that uh, neuro sensory neurons can release neuropeptides that cause vasodilation and inflammatory infl infiltrate. What's vasodilation and inflammatory infiltrate look like? It looks like a little red bump that some fluid comes out of. So this more suggests to me neurogenic inflammation that's also part of the, the reason why it's not healing. Now they are picking it, I'm not saying they're not. But it, part of the reason it's not healing is because of the neurogenic inflammation. If they have dandruff or they have anything retroauricular, if it's a rash from here up on their body, so basically uh, chest up, I'm going to call that sebderm if they've got any dandruff or retroauricular, right? So that's telling me that they are responding to malassezia. And then if it's worse with exercise, again, that's atopic dermatitis because it's the sweat. And they truly are allergic to their sweat. Multiple studies that show this. You take people with that history, my sweat makes me itch. If you allergy test them, so do prick testing with, the, with their own sweat, they react to it. Now, are they allergic to the sweat itself? No. What they're allergic to uh, are microbial um, metabolic products that get solubilized by the sweat. So whenever they sweat, it, it, you can think of it as activating the bacterial or yeast metabolic products that are on their skin that they are allergic to. 
All right, so now distribution, right? So I said distribution is the, by far the most important thing. So what are the distributions that I'm thinking about? Trunk and extremities occludes the back or spares the back. The back is hugely important, okay? Hugely important, right? So if it includes the back, then I'm thinking dermatitis NOS, which means I'm gonna immediately go into, do you meet criteria for atopic dermatitis? ACD to clothing, allergic contact dermatitis to clothing, irritant contact dermatitis from laundry detergent. So nobody is allergic to laundry detergent. A lot of people get irritant contact dermatitis from residual laundry detergent in their clothes. And that's why Tide is the main detergent that is a problem. Okay, because Tide gets your clothes cleaner because it has harsher surfactants. Free Clear All, has, has milder surfactants. So it does not cause an irritant dermatitis. It also does not get your clothes as clean, right? So when you think Tide, think Dial Bar, okay? So if they said, oh, here's Dial Free and Gentle, it doesn't have any fragrance in it, would you be like, oh, that's good for my atopics now? No, it's irritating and drying, okay? Free Clear All has different surfactants than regular All that are milder and less, they cause less irritant dermatitis. So you should not tell people, use a, one of those Free Clear detergents. You have to tell them, use Free Clear All. And I, instead of saying All Free Clear, because when you say All Free Clear, they hear all of my stuff should be free and clear. You gotta be very clear, the brand All Free and Clear, okay? Because the brand All that's not Free and Clear, not okay. It's gotta be Free Clear All. Scabies, right? Trucking extremities includes the back, numular, and xerotic. Now, if it spares the back, right, then I am much more likely to think this is allergic contact dermatitis, right? So it, if somebody's got a lot of involvement on their back, I almost don't need to patch test them because think about it, what gets on your back, right, that, that gets on your back at the same level as everything else? Nothing, right? Your moisturizer, your soap, your, all of the stuff in personal care products, your back gets much less exposure than the rest of you. So if the back is spared, then I'm much more suspicious that this person has allergic contact dermatitis. Irritant contact derm from soap, uh, again, right? You're, you're not soaping your back up as much as the rest of you. Uh, if it's waistband or their bra or their scalp, then I'm mostly thinking dermographism, not allergy to the elastic in those things. I've never seen a case of allergic contact dermatitis to the elastic uh, in underwear or bras. Can that happen? Actually, I have seen one case, sorry. Can it happen? Yeah, it can happen, but it's much more likely that it's dermographism from the tightness, from the, the stuff being tight against their skin. Hands, right? If it's palms only, almost for certain going to be endogenous or psoriasis. Endogenous meaning dishydrotic eczema uh, or psoriasis, right? If it's only the dorsal, not the palm at all, then it's irritant. If it is both palm and dorsal, the involvement of the dorsal tells you it's not dyshydrosis. The involvement of the palm tells you it's not irritant. The only thing you're really left with is allergic contact dermatitis, right? So palm, endogenous, dyshydrosis, back of the hand irritant, both back and palm, allergic contact dermatitis, okay? That's the way you think about it. Now, if it's mainly fingertips, and I'm gonna show you some pictures of this coming forward, it's frictional. Shins, right, you're thinking neurogenic and stasis, right, so forearms and shins, the first thing you should think is neurogenic. Uh, if it's forearms, the first thing you should think if it's shins is stasis. The second thing you should think if it's shins is neurogenic, 
right? So from the neuroanatomy of it, your forearms and your shins are, are neuroanatomically very similar. If you think back to the homunculus, right, that you learned about in school, that, you know, the mapping on your brain of where the different parts of your body go to, the, the forearms and the shins are treated very similarly from a neurologic perspective, right? And then forearms also PMLE, uh, obviously the other big thing there. All right, so now, Dermatitis NOS, and I'm also going to tell you, I've got too many slides in here that to, to be able to get through. I, some of the kind of the stuff that's at the end is, is more there as a like, okay, you can look through them if you want. Uh, all right, dermatitis NOS, widespread on the trunk and extremities, primarily epidermal. So it does not look like a drug rash or, uh, you know, a viral exanthem, something like that. It's not that it's got a lot of dermal with only a little bit of flaking and scaling. We're talking primarily flaky, scaly, uh, which is what I mean by an epidermal, right? So scabies uh, is always in there. I don't care. You know, people will be like, well, it wasn't in the finger webs. It wasn't on the wrist. It wasn't on the breasts. I don't care. Right, scabies is always a possibility. ACD to their body wash, ICD to the larger detergent, adult onset atopic dermatitis, and if it's none of those things, then it's dermatitis NOS, okay? So dermatitis NOS, what do I do? And, and so we're gonna talk kind of about what, how, I, how I approach this patient, right? So that when I say dermatitis NOS at the top of the slide, what I'm talking about is me walking into the room, there's not an obvious like, ah, this is blah. Right, so I'm thinking dermatitis NOS, what am I gonna do here? Right, so dermatitis NOS, short-term systemic steroids, to me, the, the, the best way to do steroids for a dermatitis is much lower dose than we usually use, but much longer. So I'm gonna do 40 for two days, 20 for two days, then I'm gonna do 10 every other day for 30 days. The literature is pretty good that 10 milligrams every other day of prednisone is really close to being harmless. So I've got patients I've had on 10 every other day of prednisone for years. You don't see osteoporosis, you don't see people getting fat redistribution, it doesn't affect their uh, appetite, that kind of stuff. So typically what I'll do is 40 and 20 for about four days, to, so two days of each to calm it down, and then I keep them on a long, longer term every other day to prevent the rebound, okay? So that's my, my normal short-term steroid for these people. I'm gonna empirically have them avoid allergens. So that means Dove Bar CeraVe cream. I'm gonna take CeraVe and mix in clobetazole uh, at roughly a one to 10 dilution. So that's gonna mean, as I was talking about earlier, 50 mLs clobetazole scalp solution costs about 38 bucks in Columbus cash. You're gonna take this, you're gonna pour it into the 16 ounce jar of CeraVe cream, which you're gonna mix up, and then you're gonna use that as a class three or four steroid. So you got now 16 ounces, you got a big container of it, uh, and, and they can use this for widespread dermatitis. They're gonna avoid irritants, which means free clear all, or if they wanna keep using their Tide or their whatever, they gotta double rinse to make sure we're not leaving residual detergent in the clothing. I'm gonna treat scabies extremely aggressively, much more aggressively than I would treat scabies if they had scabies, okay? Why? Because if I know they have scabies, I got a positive scraping. If I treat them and they don't get better, I know that it's scabies and it just treatment failed, so I gotta treat them more for scabies. In this situation where I don't know they have scabies, where I'm using their response to treatment as my way to determine if they have scabies, I've gotta do everything imaginable to make sure it's not just a treatment failure. Because if it's a treatment failure and I say, oh, you didn't get better with scabies treatment, it's not scabies, they're never gonna get treated for scabies again, they are never gonna get better, ever. Okay, so I treat really aggressively. So what, what's treating aggressively? Permethrin plus ivermectin weekly for four weeks, right? So ivermectin, neck, er, permethrin neck down, 
right? Ivermectin on, on top of that the same night, and I'm gonna do that every week for four weeks. The other thing I'm gonna do is think about updosing the ivermectin. So the, the latest, so if any of your kids ever get lice, uh, I will tell you what I do for lice whenever my kids get it, who I think they've had it three times now, uh, ivermectin. Ivermectin is by far the most effective treatment for lice. There's literature out there to support this. There is some resistance developing, so whenever, I'm, whenever you're treating, say, lice, you're better off doing 400, 400 micrograms per kilogram, uh, which is double the normal dose of ivermectin, so I'm also starting to updose ivermectin for scabies. Ivermectin, unbelievably safe drug. There, there are no reports of any significant side effects with ivermectin. All right, so I'm gonna do that weekly, once weekly for four weeks, and I already explained to you why, why I'm so aggressive with it. Right? If they're not much better, so I'm gonna treat the heck out of them for scabies, I'm gonna give them some prednisone, and I'm gonna have them avoid allergens and irritants. And I'm gonna come back in two months. Okay, if they're not much better, then to me that's adult onset atopic dermatitis, assuming that they meet Hannafin and Reka criteria, which almost everybody does. Right, so that is literally the only difference between a dermatitis NOS and atopic dermatitis is does anyone in their family have any atopy? Is there anybody who has asthma, anybody who has allergies, anybody who has anything that's atopic, now they meet criteria for atopic dermatitis. So Hanovin and Reka, three out of four of these criteria. One, it's pruritic. Two, it's ever flexural. Three, it's chronic or relapsing. And four, personal history, uh, personal or family history of atopy. So you've got to hit three out of those four. They're pruritic. It's chronic and relapsing. So we got two already. So it's either flexural or personal or family history of, of atopy of any type, right? So they could have a second cousin who's allergic to peanuts. That's enough, right? So that's the, the difference. And so if they meet criteria for Hanifin and Reka, I'm gonna really consider a trial of dupilumab, right? So they're gonna get about three or four months of dupilumab as a trial. If, they get if they're improving significantly, that confirms that it's atopic derm. I got my long-term treatment. If they don't get any better, it means I'm missing something. Uh, something weird is going on. It's pretty rare for me that this person does not get better with the dupilumab. All right, so if I'm much efficacy with it though, then they need comprehensive patch testing. If patch testing is not available or it's negative, then you're looking at methotrexate, mycophenolate. Uh, and mycophenolate, really nice drug because there's no hepato or heme toxicity, but I see a lot of uh, sinus infections, bad colds that turn into pneumonia, zoster. So when I put somebody on mycophenolate, they get prophylax. Uh, prophylaxis with valacyclovir, so they get 500 milligrams a day of valacyclovir. Uh, it's just reflex. Everybody I have on mycophenolate is on that. And then I usually also give them a prescription for a Z-Pack and tell them, look, if you get a cold or a cough that seems weird uh, or isn't going away or is worse than normal, just get it filled and take it. Right, so in a Z-Pack, because we're not worried about resistance with Z-Packs. There are no, there's not a single organism on Earth that is like a, oh, if only I hadn't taken that Z-Pack, right? Staph is already resistant, right? Enterococcus doesn't respond to azithromycin. It, it is not used to treat any like important infections. And so that's why I'm very comfortable using it as a, well, if you, if you think you've got something, go ahead and take it. Cyclosporin, uh, two to three mg per kg, so relatively low dosing whenever I use it. Glucosamine has been shown to improve the efficacy of cyclosporin. Nobody knows why or how, but it improves the efficacy by about 30%. All right, so mimics. 
of dermatitis NOS or adult onset atopic dermatitis. Dermal hypersensitivity, urticarodermatitis. Older people, usually male for me, trunk and proximal extremities. These people do not have primarily epidermal involvement. They have primarily dermal involvement with a little bit of epidermal as a like bystander. So the path, path is really what's going to be diagnostic in these people. Extremely itchy, no response to topicals. This is what it looks like. Right, so you see what I'm talking about where it's, it's not as scaly and flaky as a normal spongiotic dermatitis, right? Again, there's some scaly and flaky here, but not like a normal spongiotic dermatitis, right? So the key to diagnosis here is PATH that shows at least some mid-dermal involvement. So, right, your normal path of spongiotic derm is, right, what if, so basket weave, orthocare, blah, 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 minimal to mod spongiosis, then with superficial perivascular lymphocytic with scattered eosinophils, right? That's the end part of most spongiotic dermatitis. If there is any component of sparse middermal, any middermal involvement, I'm immediately going to, okay, this is dermal hypersensitivity. Right, so it can be minimal. There should be at least one EO or neutrophil. Now, I, I went on and on earlier about how EOs are worthless. Uh, they become worthless whenever you're not talking about sponge derm. Okay, and just plain sponge derm with superficial perivascular, you don't care about EOs. Sponge derm with mid, mid dermal or lichenoid or anything else, if it's not a sponge derm, then EOs matter a lot. But with sponge derm, EOs don't matter. All right, so I'm going to give them prednisone, as we talked about earlier. Uh, I am Kenalog, and then they're going to need a, an immunosuppressive. So they're going to need either mycophenolate, uh, and I'll do 1,000 BID is, is my typical dose, or they're going to need methotrexate. Methotrexate, my typical dose, is 10 milligrams uh, once a week, and they're going to do about a three- to four-month trial uh, with either of these to see if they're going to work. And then maybe cyclosporin, we talked, talked about that a minute ago, right? Cyclosporin is by far the most side effects of any of these drugs. So I try not, you know, I, I don't want to use the cyclosporin. I want to use the methotrexate or the mycophenolate, both of which have really good safety profiles. Um, but this is also a, a case where I do not find dupixent to work for these people, right? So I, I don't even try dupixent in them because the, the few that I tried it, because they do meet Hanifin and Reka, they've got some spongiosis, blah, 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 didn't see it work at all for this. So I, I don't, this is not something where, where Dupixin is even in my therapeutic algorithm, right? Dermographism, intensely itchy, present every day, but only last hours today is at a given site. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to say, so where do you itch? Everywhere. Okay, well, like how, how much of the time? All the time. So what any rational sane person would assume is that they itch everywhere all the time. That is not what they mean. You, when you ask them more carefully, what you'll find is, well, it's, no, it's not that everywhere itches all the time, it's that everywhere itches, and I itch all the time, but it's like, today it's my left shoulder, tomorrow it's my right thigh, the day after that it's my waistband, the day after that it's my scalp, the day after that it's my left thigh. So everywhere on their body itches at times, and they are always itchy, but it is not that every square inch of their body is itching all the time. So it's, it's getting into that question a little bit more and it being, yes, it moves from day to day. When it moves from day to day, that should be, your first thing is dermographism, right? So 
Uh, typical clothes, that the other story that you'll get is, oh my God, it itches so much when I get undressed at the end of the day. Taking my clothes off just sets it off horribly, right? So uh, things that are relatively tight. So bra, groin from underwear, scalp from, and so dermographism, what is it? Uh, I didn't explain that, but I think I get to it in a minute here. So scalp from using your brush and styling your hair, a waistline from underwear, socks, so anything that is tight, and they can develop a dermatitis from repeated scratching. So this is, is sort of a typical dermographism looking patient. The little streaky part is what shows you really the dermographism, but you can see why this woman thinks she's allergic to her bra, right? Because it really, it's turned into a dermatitis under her bra because when you get repeated mast cell degranulation, eventually you start to get a dermatitis uh, if you get it in the same area over and over again. So what is dermographism? Dermographism is essentially that your mast cells, those little water balloon-like microscopic water balloons that are filled with histamine, it's that they have become too fragile. And so uh, friction, pressure, heat, anything like that can cause them to activate, right? Essentially that little water balloon pops and releases its histamine and you immediately get itchy. Okay, so in these people, the key to diagnosis, the, the final diagnosis is a response to high dose oxidating antihistamines. If they get any response from the antihistamines, you have confirmed that this is histamine driven. And if you get no efficacy with antihistamines, then no matter how good their history was for dermographism, I'm going back to dermatitis NOS. All right, so uh, what does that look like? High doses of antihistamines. Loratadine 40 BID. Uh, Monolucast, not an antihistamine, right? So Singular is the brand name for this, 10 milligrams a day. I'll add that on if, if the antihistamine helped a little. So 40 BID, it's rare that I keep anybody on that dose, but that's a dose where I'm saying, look, if 80 milligrams a day of loratadine did not make a difference, histamine is not involved. Right, so that's kind of a diagnostic rule, ruling out histamine by doing that. Most people, if, if it is this, end up on about 40 milligrams a day of loratadine uh, is typically the dose that I find to be effective. I take 40 milligrams of loratadine every day myself, been doing that for uh, 11 years when I married my wife who has cats and I am highly cat allergic. And so choice between me, dosing myself massively with antihistamines or getting rid of the cats, we're dosing me massively with antihistamines, right? Totally fine, no side effects, no long-term effects. It's not an anticholinergic, right? So with Benadryl and hydroxyzine, we're now a little bit worried that long-term use increases your risk for, for dementia. We don't need to worry about that with loratadine or fexofenadine, uh, even cetirizine, we don't need to worry about it uh, as long as they're not getting sedated from the cetirizine. Right, so high dose non-sedating antihistamines, uh, monolucast, and then uh, sometimes I end up having to go to Zolaire uh, or phototherapy. If, if these have been like moderately effective, so I know it's histamine driven, but not adequately effective, that's whenever I'm thinking about going on to something like Zolaire or phototherapy. All right, so that was body dermatitis, widespread dermatitis. Now we're gonna talk about facial dermatitis. So face and neck confluent, atopic dermatitis, or airborne allergic contact, right? So here's what this looks like. So these are all airborne allergic contact dermatitis. The two guys here, uh, it was from paint, right? So paint has methyl isothiazolinone in it. The methyl isothiazolinone, after a room has been painted, gets released into the air for anywhere from three to six months. And so it's, it's mainly a problem with small rooms that are poorly ventilated. So bedrooms and offices at work, 
are, are the two things that are big problems. The woman here, uh, she was allergic to uh, sesquiterpene lactone. So those are uh, an oil that is present on the pollen of weeds like goldenrod and ragweed. She lived in the country during the summer when there was a lot of pollen in the air, she would get this facial dermatitis, right? So that's face and neck confluence. So lateral face, right? So here we're, we're looking at lateral face dermatitis. Lateral face is a rinse off pattern that is gonna be allergy to shampoo and conditioner. Uh, the vast majority of the time when it's primarily lateral face might extend down onto the neck or the jawline. Uh, but shampoo or conditioner, whenever I see lateral face, uh, primarily involved. When I see patchy, including the central face, then I, I am more thinking ACD to facial cleanser, right? So this was somebody who was uh, allergic to Cetaphil daily, uh, I don't know, Cetaphil gentle cleanser, right? So the non-lathering Cetaphil, which has propylene glycol in it, uh, she was allergic to it. So right, this is kind of confluent face, but patchy. And the reason I talk about patchy, if it is an allergy to a leave-on product, so foundation, moisturizer, something like that, it's not gonna be patchy, it's gonna be everywhere they put it on. The reason it's patchy whenever it's shampoo, conditioner, or cleanser is there's such a tiny residual amount. It's all getting rinsed off, so there's, it's, there's so little allergen left on there that they don't get a confluent dermatitis, they only get a patchy dermatitis. All right, so a patchy central face, Confluent central face, right, which I was just talking about, then it's more likely to be allergic contact dermatitis from moisturizer or maybe gold jewelry interacting with their foundation. So these women were both allergic to gold, right? So you see the confluent in her kind of central and around the eyes and on her nose. The other woman kind of central face here again. So gold jewelry uh, interacts with the titanium dioxide in foundation. So all foundation that I'm aware of has titanium dioxide in it. That's what gives it uh, its opaqueness and coverage. And titanium dioxide interacts with gold and activates the gold as an allergen. So the only time that I care when I get somebody allergic to gold and gold is now on the true test uh, is if I've got a central face dermatitis, right? So if it's anywhere else on their body, the gold is irrelevant, doesn't matter. Okay, central face, and then they've got the choice. They can either stop wearing the gold or they can stop wearing makeup. Women will all choose which of those two. Stop wearing the gold, replace it with platinum, right? That's the, right? So usually the husband is like, oh, no more gold jewelry. <laughs> Ooh. And then I bring out the platinum, right? And then the wife is very happy, all right? So gold, it, now the other thing about this, it takes a long time to resolve, okay? So this might take three to six months to get better whenever I stop it, whenever I get them away from it, which also you're gonna see with your patch test reactions to gold. It's common for me to see somebody who's been patch tested four or five months ago who still has a positive patch test from the gold. Gold just causes a really long duration of dermatitis. Any retroauricular supports seborrheic dermatitis, any face goes against scabies, dermNOS, numular, xerotic, or dermographism. So now, if, if none of this has worked for me, my sort of be-all, end-all, you didn't react to anything on the patch testing, your pattern isn't suggestive of anything in particular, is Sebderm. So I think Sebderm is the most underdiagnosed facial dermatosis. So right, we're all totally competent to say, oh, you got a rash right here, that's Sebderm. You got a rash right here, that's Sebderm. You got a rash behind your ears, that's Sebderm. I see so many people who it's just eyelid dermatitis. It's just, they, maybe they have it down here, 
Right, so just so many different things that it, it ends up seborrheic dermatitis responds to anti-yeast therapy, right? So that's the main thing that's helpful. So in a facial dermatitis that I haven't been able to figure out, I'm going to give them a trial of pretty aggressive anti-yeast therapy. And any scalp involvement strongly argues against allergic contact dermatitis as the cause, right? Other than the obvious, oh, I get my hair dyed. When I get my hair dyed, my head itches, right? That's obviously allergic contact dermatitis to the hair dye, but just scalp involvement that isn't directly and obviously related to hair dye basically rules out contact derm. You, it's just incredibly rare to get allergic contact dermatitis on the scalp from ingredients in shampoo or conditioner or hairstyling products. It just does not happen. Uh, and, and we kind of know why it doesn't happen. Immunologically, the follicles on your scalp have a, a high density of T regulatory cells that are inhibitory to contact dermatitis. Right, so now when I see suspected facial ACD, so this lateral face could be eyelids, we're gonna look at some eyelids in a few minutes here, central face, whatever, but suspected facial ACD. The reason I'm not gonna true test them is the true test is terrible for diagnosing allergy to personal care products. It's very good for diagnosing allergy to metals, to the active ingredients in steroids, and to rubber gloves, but for personal care products, it is terrible. Right, so the, the true test just, it doesn't have the right allergens for diagnosing allergy to, to personal care products. So what am I gonna do? I'm gonna switch them probably to Dermarest psoriasis two-in-one shampoo conditioner. I'm gonna, now this is, it does have an allergen in it, cocomitopropyl betaine. So it, I do see people allergic to this. Free and clear is better, it's less allergenic. The reason I go to this is mainly just because it's so easy to get. So every CVS in America has it. Shampoo aisle, bottom shelf, far end away from the cash register, right? I probably say that five times a day in my office uh, just to tell people that's where they're going to find it in CVS because if you just go to look for it, you're, they, they're very unlikely to find it. Bottom shelf, far end away from the cash register, right? So I'll use it to wash their face or I'll do CeraVe hydrating cleanser. If they need moisturizer, I'll do CeraVe PM uh, as their facial moisturizer. Uh, and unless it's confluent on their whole face, or it is very specific with some makeup, right? So it's only here on their cheeks where they put blush. Or it's, uh, you know, only on their uh, eyelids, but it's not immediate, right? So anytime somebody says, I'm allergic to my eyeshadow, because when I put it on within an hour, my eyes are itchy and swollen, you cannot get contact derm that fast. We, sorry, you can't get allergic contact derm that fast. It's an irritant dermatitis from the eyeshadow. It's not allergy to the eyeshadow. All right, so the rest of the makeup is okay unless it fits a specific distribution. No nail cosmetics, and I've changed that a little bit. I'm actually okay with regular nail polish, right? It's very rare that I see any problem with regular nail polish, but no long-lasting nail polishes, right? So now really popular are these two-week nail polishes, which are acrylates. So they chemically are the same thing as the, the stuff that you go into the salon and they put on. I see allergy to that stuff all the time. So I'll tell people no long-lasting nail polish. All right, so I'll give them a shot of Kenalog if it's pretty bad. I'll give, do the clobetazone to the CeraVe. Now, usually with a face, I'll probably more do something like a desinide. Uh, but if, if I really want to use my CeraVe clobetazole regimen, instead of a 50 ml bottle of clobetazole, they get a 25 ml bottle of clobetazole. So I, I just use half the strength if I'm going to use that on the face. So, but whether it's th that or desinide or acclimatazone, uh, it's going to be five nights a week. If they get better, 
So meaning that over time, because the normal deal that I give them is, okay, you're going to put it on for five days before you go to bed, then you're going to take two days off. If it's not coming back after the two days off, don't start the steroid again until it starts to come back. And what I'm expecting to happen is for the first few weeks, five, two, five, two, five, two. Then after maybe a month, it's going to go to four, three, four, three. Then a little longer, it's going to go to three days on, four days off. As they get better, they're going to need to use the steroid for shorter periods and they're going to have longer breaks in between. That's what improving looks like. All right, so if they're getting better, tells me that this is almost for sure allergic contact derm, and I'm going to try and find somebody doing at least the American Contact Dermatitis Society's core series. If they don't get better with this regimen, I've pretty effectively ruled out allergic contact dermatitis. All right, so next step, these are two examples of what I would call atypical appearing seborrheic dermatitis, right? So you would not look at either of these people and be like, oh, subderm, right? Now, there are definitely some clues. This woman has it on one side in her nasolabial fold. She does have it in her glabella, but it's also on the rest of her forehead and on her lateral face, not typical places. This guy doesn't really have it in the typical places a ton, has it mostly around his eyes and on his upper forehead, right? These are not people you would look at and say, oh, subderm, right? And that's why sebderm is, is sort of my go-to, okay, I don't think it's anything else. I don't know, I guess I'm going to try treating you for sebderm. So what's my treatment for that look like? So the stuff you've always done, everybody gets a wash, ketoconazole or cycloprox, everybody gets a mid-potency steroid that they're going to use a couple of days a week or as needed. They're going to get a topical anti-yeast or some ketoconazole to use every day. Now, in these cases where I'm trying to, to rule it out, so I want to make sure that, it, that it's not just that it didn't fail to respond to therapy. Just like when I was treating scabies, I went extra aggressive. If I'm not sure it's sebderm, I'm going to treat them more aggressively, right? So difficult sebderm, I'm going to add a systemic azole, so fluconazole 200 milligrams once a day, two weeks to a month. And then if they've gotten better, I'm going to switch that to taking it on the weekends only. So some people it's just once a week, some people it's two days a week. I, I do worry about drug interactions when I have them on it every day for two weeks, but when they're on it just one to two days a week, not worried about drug interactions at all, right? The fluconazole is not a strong enough uh, cytochrome inhibitor to cause a problem when you're only using it one to two days a week. Other things I'll do for sebderm, uh, isotretinone works really well for sebderm, right? Because the yeast lives on the oil. So if we can reduce the amount of oil, we can reduce the amount of yeast. So very low dose, uh, right? Because I don't want to induce an ear, uh, uh, retinoid dermatitis. Methotrexate up to 10 milligrams a week also works. All right, eyelid dermatitis. If it's chronic and continuous, I'm probably going to do tacrolimus ointment. If it's intermittent or something that I think I'm going to be able to get better and they're not going to have to treat every day, a class four steroid, the data is, is pretty good, is safe to use up to half the time, so three or four days a week. Uh, and then I'm going to have them rinse their eyelids very well after they wash their face. The main cause of eyelid dermatitis uh, it, that I have found seems to be the issue in these patients who get referred to me is an irritant dermatitis from any residual shampoo conditioner or soap on their eyelids. Because right, your faces, your eyes are closed when you're washing or when you're rinsing your shampoo out. If there's any residue left here, you're going to walk around the rest of the day with your eyes open and it's occluded. So we've now occluded the irritant in very thin skin, which really magnifies the irritant effect. Um, so I will have them rinse their eyelids very well after washing their face. Uh, and I will wash their face with CeraVe hydrating cleanser or Cetaphil gentle daily cleanser after they have shampooed, right? So you've got to be really cl clear that you're going to wash your face after you've rinsed out your hair products. 
All right, now eyelid dermatitis. So what are the distributions here that, that are helpful? So if it's centered on that upper lid crease, as I said, that's irritant from shampoo, conditioner, cleanse up, makeup remover. Uh, some women, it's just, they're putting so much stuff around their eyes, right? So they've got like three eye creams and it's just, they, it, and something that none of us have really known uh, well, but the, the literature is now coming out. Moisturizers, soaps, any product is bad for your skin. So even if, if you don't have a dermatitis or dry skin, putting CeraVe on your skin is bad for it, right? Putting moisturizers, oils, I don't care what it is, it is bad for your skin. Now, if your skin has a problem to begin with, right, you've got dry skin, atopic dermatitis, you've got whatever, then yes, it can, it can fix problems. But for normal, healthy skin, Every product you use is compromising your skin further, okay? The, and, the, and the data is now out there. We, moisturizer, you take, you take this skin, measure transepidermal water loss, which is the, the best measure we have of skin integri integrity. Then I, it, you're not using any moisturizer, I measure it. I have you use moisturizer for two weeks, then you come back, your transepidermal water loss has gone up. Your skin is less effective as a barrier when you use moisturizer. So the only people who should be using moisturizer are people who need it. Right, people who have dry skin, okay? So that's really a, a mind-blowing thing, right? A, a really a mind-blowing thing. All right, so this is what irritant eyelid dermatitis looks like. So doesn't spread a whole lot beyond that upper, that upper lid crease, right? This is another example, a little more impressive of the irritant eyelid dermatitis on that upper lid crease, but again, relatively localized to just on the eyelid skin itself, right? Uh, now, what do I do? Wash face with a gentle cleanser after rinsing out the shampoo and conditioner, CeraVe hydrating cleanser, apply the, the ceramide containing moisturizer immediately after drying their face, and I'll use a class four steroid up to four days per week. Extends beyond the orbital rim, that's allergic contact dermatitis, right? So here you see the eyelid is very involved, but then it extends beyond the eyelid proper. Again, eyelid very involved, but extending a lot down onto the, the lower cheek and extending up to the top. But more importantly, she also has it in her neck, right? So this has gone beyond the, the being very localized to the lid crease. Again, beyond very localized to the lid crease. Uh, and again, spreading down onto the neck goes beyond the lid crease, right? So you get the idea. This is what allergic contact dermatitis of the eyelids looks like. It spreads beyond just the eyelid right here. Okay, so uh, what are the allergen sources? Soap and shampoo are number one, two, three, four, and five. Okay, those are the soap, shampoo, and conditioner, sorry. Hair dye, if, it's, if they're doing dyeing their hair at home, then washing uh, to rinse it out. Occasionally makeup applicators, so they can re have rubber-related allergens in them. Makeup, a very, very rare allergen, but a very, very common irritant. So it's very rare that I find anybody allergic to their makeup. Very common that I find people who get an exacerbation of a mild dermatitis to become a severe dermatitis after they have, when they put their makeup on. And then eyelash curlers, I, I've never had a case where I was convinced that eyelash curler was causing uh, allergic contact dermatitis. Right, medial canthus, right, that's what, the, looking like this, this is atopic eyelid dermatitis until proven otherwise. And it's because, right, in little kids, we're very used to that they're gonna do this when they have itchy eyes and they're gonna get kind of their whole eye involved. Adults don't do this, right? When was the last time you saw an adult doing this, right? What do you do as an adult? Well, you're very refined and sophisticated, so you just use one finger, and you do that. And if you do that enough, 
you eventually get lichen simplex of your medial canthus, right? So they're usually an obvious atopic. Uh, seasonal allergy is the big thing. Uh, antihistamines, promoxine, so uh, sarna-sensitive, CeraVe anti-itch, and then steroids and tacrolimus ointment. I talked earlier about how I use them on the eyelids, right? Tacrolimus, uh, I use continuously. I'll often do, say, tacrolimus every night, and then a steroid cream, because people don't want to put an ointment on in the mornings, so I'll do a, a, medium, a low to medium potency steroid cream up to three to four mornings a week as needed. All right, next one, one eyelid worse than the other, right? So. Uh, on both of these, you see it's the, the left eyelid was worse than the other, but this is allergen being transferred to the eyelids from the hands, right? It can be nail polish, acrylic nails, hand moisturizers, hand soaps, but one eyelid worse than the other is typically going to be transferred to the eyelid, right? And then the last one only affects one part of the eyelid, right? So affects like the medial eyelid or the lateral eyelid, or only one part of, of a lid, and is very well and sharply demarcated, right? This is eyelid seborrheic dermatitis, and I'm gonna approach this the same way that I would approach any seborrheic dermatitis, anti-yeast treatments, uh, topical immunomodulators, topical steroids used intermittently. Right, seborrheic dermatitis slash psoriasis of the eyelids or face. You're going to exclude other diagnoses as much as possible. I'm going to really check the retroauricular area. And as I said, I'm going to do an azole. Uh, and I might do a steroid at night if, it, if I'm more treating, uh, seb, if I'm treating sebderm very purely, I'm more likely to do the antifungal every morning and to do the steroid at night, three to four nights a week as needed. If I'm treating more of a, I don't know if this is irritant derm or, or sebderm or what this is, then I'm more likely to do uh, a topical immunomodulator, so tacrolimus ointment at night, and then a steroid cream in the mornings uh, as, on an as-needed basis up to three to four nights a week. That's three to four mornings a week, sorry. Right, and I'm gonna have them wash their face with a dandruff shampoo. Right, so you can prescribe ketoconazole 2% or they can just get, you know, Head and Shoulders or Selsun Blue or T-Sal or whatever. Right, and it can look like ACD or ICD. It's a difficult thing. Hand eczema. All right, so first we're going to start with frictional dermatitis because this is the thing that, that there are the, the highest rate of people just not knowing about this, right? 98% of dermatologists don't know that this exists. So very painful fissuring sensitive dermatitis, usually the first three digits, primarily the tips in the lateral aspect of the index finger, usually one hand worse, does not itch, right? So you're gonna, now it may itch occasionally, but most of the time it doesn't itch. Uh, it, it only itches kind of in the middle of healing, and it's gonna be shiny with loss of your fingerprint, and the palm is gonna be relatively spared, and these people, about two thirds of them will also have rough hyperkeratotic cracked heels. Right, so that's also a frictional dermatitis. If you've ever wondered why do people get that on their heels, it's frictional, right? So frictional dermatitis, so that, that heel thing is not real. It is xerotic and dry, but it's really friction that's the big problem of why people get those dry cracked heels. All right, so this is what it typically looks like. Uh, now, this is a, a fairly bad case of it, but it's primarily fingertips, lateral index finger. Doesn't really itch much. Hurts horribly, but doesn't itch much, right? Th now, this woman had failed uh, multiple psoriasis biologics, methotrexate, cyclospor, and mycophenolate, would get better on systemic steroids, but then would relapse immediately. This is her on no therapy other than trying to protect her hands from friction. This is her three months later, uh, not on any systemic drugs anymore, 
right? This is a, a milder case to show kind of the, the idea of you get loss of the dramatoglyphics. And again, though, you see the index finger, the thumb, those are typically the most involved, right? So keys to diagnosis here, distribution, so fingertips, maybe occupational history, which mainly is if you work for a living. So if you're in construction, if you're in the trades, uh, if you do landscaping, you don't get this. Okay, and that's because of what it is. So what this is, when you think about a callus, right, we know the skin responds to friction, all right? If it's high perpendicular force friction, you're gonna get a callus. A callus is extra layers of skin and the keratinocytes are more tightly bound to each other, right? So it's denser and thicker. In frictional dermatitis, what's happening to these people, they're getting a partial callus response to light friction. Right, high frequency, lots of it happening, but light friction with your fingertips. So computer, keyboards, mice, phones, paper, cardboard, things like that. And the partial callus response is they're growing extra layers of skin faster, so they're, they're, their skin cells are, are replicating faster, but instead of sticking together tighter like a callus does, they're sticking together less. And so they get these extra layers of skin that crack, flake, and peel really easily. Uh, and so that's why we don't see it in people who actually work for a living, because they've got enough high perpendicular force friction on their fingers that they are getting actual callus-type responses, and their skin's getting tougher rather than being, uh, you know, falling apart more easily like it does in these people. This definitely seems to be a genetic predisposition uh, is what I, I think is going on in these people, but it's not like I get family history of, oh, my grandma had this, right? I, you know, but it, it, it seems like it has to be a genetic thing. How do I uh, treat these people? So to get, them feel, to get them some relief immediately, soak and smear for their hands, so soak in warm water for 15 minutes, apply petroleum jelly, put jersey gloves on and leave overnight. They're, I use jersey gloves because they're cheaper and easier to find than white cotton gloves. Jersey gloves you can get at Lowe's, Home Depot, Walmart, wherever, they're a buck a pair. They're, they're really cheap gloves for doing yard work uh, and that kind of stuff. But they're 100% cotton, just much easier to find than the white cotton gloves, right? So available everywhere, buck a pair, stay on better than the white cotton. Longer term fix, so that's they're going to wake up in the morning and be like, oh my God, this is the best it's felt in months. And then 10 minutes after they've gotten their shower, it's going to be right back to where they started. Because as soon as it dries back out, it loses the, the increased pliability that that moisture gave it. Okay, so long-term fix. Tazeratine may do some benefit here. I'm not sure if it does or not, to be honest. I, I, topically, I find almost nothing works. So Topical steroids do not work for this at all. Systemic steroids do. Uh, I'm not sure why. I suspect it's because systemic steroids decrease uh, prolifer cell proliferation. So maybe we're slowing down how quickly they're producing those new layers, and, and that's why it gets better. Uh, but gel finger protectors are the best thing that I have found, right? So these are cheap on Amazon. This is what they look like. So they're a little bit thicker than, say, like cutting the tip off of a rubber glove. They're maybe a millimeter thick, so they have a little bit of padding. They're also really good just for people who get the little cracks right here on their, uh, on their fingertip at the corner of their fingernail. These like immediately makes it feel better. Uh, so just, just by protecting it, but like this is seven bucks on Amazon. Uh, and this is literally the picture from Amazon. Right, irritant hand dermatitis, repetitive exposure to soap and water, but the big thing with irritant hand dermatitis is not so much how much you wash your hands, it's do you wash your hands and then put gloves on? Because what happens, you wash your hands, even whenever you rinse them, you're not getting all the soap off. And so you don't get all the soap off, then you put the gloves on, you're now occluding the soap. 
we, the, so, and we know that occlusion increases the effect of either a pharmaceutical or soap by 10 to 40 fold. So if you wash your hands and put a pair of gloves on, that is the equivalent of washing your hands 20 times. So if you're a nurse and you wash your hands 50 times a day, put gloves on every time after you wash them, that's like washing your hands a thousand times a day, right, without gloves. So it's, now maybe I'm overestimating that a little bit, but you get the idea. It's, it's washing your hands and then putting gloves on that's the big problem. So healthcare, beauticians, food service workers being the big problems. Alcohol-based hand sanitizers, much better for your skin than soap and water. Also much better as an, uh, a prophylaxis to prevent spread of infection. The CDC does not want us to wash our hands. We're not supposed to wash our hands. If you're washing your hands between patients, you are performing very bad medicine, right? You're supposed to be using hand sanitizer between patients. It is much more effective to decolonize your hands, prevent transmission from patient to patient. And when you wash your hands and get a hand dermatitis, now it's also almost impossible to get the staff off of your hands. So the hand, hand sanitizer doesn't cause the dermatitis and is much more effective at uh, debacterializing your hands, right? The problem is once you've got a hand dermatitis, these sting like crazy and nobody's gonna use them, okay? What you need, what you do here, so non-alcohol hand sanitizer. If you Google non-alcohol hand sanitizer, there are things out there, it's just like a lotion, but it has an ingredient called benzalkonium chloride that is non-irritating and a very effective antiseptic. So non-alcohol-based hand sanitizer is, is what you want people to switch to. Moisturize immediately after every hand washing. I really like this Cavalon Barrier Cream. So Cavalon Barrier Cream persists for three hand washings according to research that the company has done. It's cheap, it's about seven bucks. You can get it on Amazon. And this really does make a difference. So it has dimethicone, which is why they're allowed to call it a barrier cream, but the dimethicone isn't why it works. It works because it's got a, a, a polymer in it that as it spreads on your hand, it polymerizes and leaves an invisible film on there that does actually persist through about three hand washings. Really a useful product for me. It's marketed uh, and indicated for preventing urinary incontinence dermatitis in bedbound patients. Also, though, works great for irritant hand dermatitis. And I try to avoid using topical steroids because they impair barrier uh, reconstitution. Difficult dyshydrosis. So assuming that you're doing clobetazole under occlusion Monday through Friday, so they put it on at night, wear gloves, and that isn't working, I'll do clobetazole scalp solution immediately followed by 30% urea. The 30% urea uh, is easy and cheap to get. So it is userin, rough, bumpy spot treatment. It's about seven, eight bucks. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, it's a 30% urea product. So I'll put the clobetazole scalp solution on, then put that on over it to try and reduce the hyperkeratosis to help allow the clobetazole to penetrate better over time. And then I'll do that once a day. And then I'll do either pomecrolimus or tacrolimus in addition to it. Assuming that that stuff isn't working, Dupilumab, if they meet Hannafin and Reka criteria, numerous reports in the literature, if I can't get the Dupilumab or it doesn't work, I may want to patch test them. If I can't or don't, uh, or I do patch test them and they're negative, then I'm going to methotrexate, mycophenolate, cyclosporin, sy systemic drugs, uh, just because it is so hard to treat this uh, topically. And then a list of low allergenicity products, just for your reference, most important one on here is the hair dye. Wella Colistin Perfect Innocence. This is, so every time you're walking out of the room and the patient says, oh, and by the way, every time I get my hair dyed, my head gets incredibly horribly itchy and starts to weep and ooze for a couple of days, can I still get my hair dyed? To which your answer is like, well, I guess it's probably not gonna kill you. Uh, and maybe you give them some clobetazole to put on for a couple of days before, a couple of days after. 
this is what you need to recommend. Wella Colistin Perfect is a, probably the best known hair dye in salons, right? It's, a, it's, it's uh, widely used. Wella Colistin Perfect Innocence is the exact same dye, but the paraphenylene diamine is being chemically modified. So it's methoxymethyl paraphenylene diamine. And basically, you, right, remember how allergic contact dermatitis works. You've got an antigen binding site that then the antigen fits in. And that's how your immune system recognizes and reacts. What they've done is figured out where, how the paraphenylene diamine fits in, and they put that methoxymethyl group on here, so now it, it can't get in there. So it works exactly the same. Same colors, same process, same durability. If the patient wasn't told it was a different hair dye than their normal hair dye, they wouldn't know. Okay, you can get this on Amazon as well for people who dye their hair at home, and it's, it costs about $1 more a bottle than the regular Wella Colistin Perfect. So it's like 11, 12 bucks a bottle for, for it. At least that's what it was last time I checked. It's probably up to like 17, 18 bucks now. But that's the, the most useful thing you're gonna see that's on here. And then the two-week gloves, right, for your healthcare workers who are allergic to gloves. We've got an exam glove and a sterile glove there. And that is it. Thank you very much. The overall performance of the speaker. I'm all sweaty. I get too excited. Didn't used to happen when I was young. Now I'm old. How useful will this session be in your practice? As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? I love what a hypnotic voice that is. <laughs> hey, that, okay, that is my correct email. Why are there no pushing handouts or other information about ethyl hexoglycerol on the ACDS website? I actually do not think of, so I think you're more talking about ethyl hexoglycerin. Uh, I actually don't think of that as a, as a, I've never found anybody who was allergic to it. I've been patch testing to it for several years. Uh, not a common allergen at all. That's, that's why there's not much out there about it. Uh, how soon do I biopsy rashes? Most people have been biopsied by the time they get to me. If it, I'd say most people that I'm seeing, if they've not been biopsied, I'm biopsying them on the first uh, visit, uh, and, and I'm telling them I'm not expecting the biopsy to be useful. I'm expecting the biopsy just to tell me that you don't have something crazy that I'm missing. Uh, have I ever seen, oh yeah, so it's the, 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 the histology of scabies is sponge derm. So scabies pathology is contact, is contact dermatitis, right? So with scabies, the reason they're getting scabies is because they're allergic to the poop of the mites. So scabies is just an allergic contact dermatitis from the scabies poop, okay? So it, it, it's just sponge derm, like any other sponge derm whenever you biopsy it. Uh, so allergic contact derm, uh, the American Contact Derm Society's website has really good handouts, and then there's another thing called the Contact Dermatitis Institute. So if you just Google that, Contact Dermatitis Institute, they've got a whole bunch of videos, uh, short two to three minute videos for patients about all the different allergens. They also have allergen handouts on there as well, a pretty comprehensive set of them. Uh, I don't love their handouts, I don't think the information on them is great, but it's much better than nothing. Uh, dermatitis, if EOs on sponge derm are meaningless, what do you see on a biopsy of a dermatitis is truly a drug rash. For me, it is any lichenoid or interface. 
So it's, it's not the presence or absence of EOs, it is the, the presence or absence of interface dermatitis. So the vast majority of drug rashes are gonna have some interface or some lichenoid change. Have I ever diagnosed anyone with dermographism without a negative scratch test? I, I don't even do scratch tests anymore. Uh, so I did them for a long time. I found enough people who responded to the antihistamines who had a negative scratch test. So it's not even part of my dermographism workup anymore because I think of it as so unreliable. Now, if, and a scratch test literally means you scratch them and then you see if they get a hive where you scratched them. I, I, I don't do them anymore. If they give the right history, I try treating them with the antihistamines and see if they get better. The diagnostic test for dermographism is, is do they respond at least partially to antihistamines? So I put, no, it's not 10 mLs, it is 50 mLs, so a normal bottle of clobetazole scalp solution. This clobetazole scalp solution comes in 25 mL bottles and 50 mL bottles. 50 mL bottle of clobetazole scalp solution, they dump the whole thing into a 16 ounce jar of CeraVe. That makes a class three steroid. Uh, okay for face and skin folds. It's okay for face and skin folds. You just have to adjust the frequency, right? So for body, arms and legs, I'm gonna do five days a week. For skin folds and face, I'm gonna do three or four days a week. So, right, whenever you're talking about avoiding steroid side effects, you can either adjust the potency of the steroid or adjust the frequency of application. I use clobetazole straight on the face all the time, right? Now, when I do that, it's two days a week, right? So I'm not doing clobetazole on your face five days a week, but clobetazole two days a week on the face, not a problem. Now, don't just go home and do that because your supervising physician is going to have a heart attack, right? But you can adjust the frequency or the potency. All right. That is it. Thank you so much. Really love talking to you guys. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.